Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. We finally made our way out of Ruth chapter 3, and we were left with a cliffhanger yet again. Uh, another issue that we had to wait for, but we wanted to linger in that. We wanted to wait in that section of waiting. I had so many amazing conversations this last week based off of that message. Where God calls us to wait and we trust in Him. Even when we're wondering, when are you going to act? When are you going to work? It's a difficult thing, but Naomi, at the end of chapter 3, has learned, I can wait. I can wait. When you love something the way that Boaz loves Ruth, you're absolutely fine making costly, calculated commitments for the one that you love. And as we're going to see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning, we are going to see on display what that love looks like, costly, committed love. And as I was reading through this section, it reminded me of costly committed love in my own life when I was getting ready to purchase my wife's engagement ring. So those of you who are married, you know this sense of I want it to be a surprise, don't want them to know what I'm doing, don't know how to go about doing that because I don't know the, the, the size of the finger for the ring size, I don't know what to do, I don't even know what they want, I want to buy something that they're not going to like. So I remember it just Months before, even I think it was about a year and a half before, I, I just started, the, the, the wheels started turning in my mind. Okay, first I got to get her sister involved. Reconnaissance mission, figure out what in the world Hannah even likes. So I asked uh, Rachel, my sister-in-law, to go do some reconnaissance. What do you like? What, what rings do you enjoy? What, and just as graciously, as discerningly as she possibly could so that Hannah would not expect anything. Then I remember I stole a ring. Not from... <laughs> Not from like Kay's Jewelers or anything. I stole a ring from my wife, uh, from her little ring box. I had um, Rachel do that for me so I could figure out her size without having to ask. So I took this ring, figured out which one would fit on her finger, took it to the jeweler, said, I, I'm looking for the size, can you tell me? And they had like those little things that you could put around. Okay, she's a size, whatever. So we got that down. So calculated excitement. And then came the costly part. I worked, and 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 I saved, and I saved, and I saved. And then I was able to work with somebody that I knew who does jewelry for a living to make a one-of-a-kind ring that had never been made before. And all of the calculated cost, all of the commitment to, to making sure this is something that she would love, in that moment when I'm down on one knee and she sees that ring and still wears it to this day and Lord willing always will. That is the moment when all of that calculated, all the costs, all the commitments that you make, they all finally are realized in that moment and just all pays off. It all pays off. You will always plan carefully, work hard for, and think through every angle of something that you are going to purchase because of your love for that person. It's just not willy-nilly. You don't just say, well, let's just grab a ring from a Cracker Jack box. Let's just do that. We'll do No, you have to get an understanding of because of my amazing love for somebody, I'm going to do whatever it takes even at great cost to myself. You're fine to make a costly commitment because of your love for that person. So this morning, I want to ask our hearts as we look at Boaz, number one, 
Do you love others the way that Boaz loves Ruth? We're going to see his love on display. Do you love others the way that Boaz loves Ruth? It's difficult love. It's hard love. It's costly love. But number two, and more importantly, and what Ruth is pointing us to, is do you know, not just intellectually, but experientially, have you felt, do you understand, do you sense the love that God has for you, that Boaz is a picture of? Do you understand the love that Boaz has for Ruth, and then do you understand the love that God has for you, which enables Boaz to live out the love that he has for Ruth? Let's read these verses together and we'll dive in. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said to them, sit down here. So they all sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, because there's no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field, from the hand of Naomi. You must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man would remove his sandal, give it to another. This was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Father, we studied this morning from Psalm 119, verse 18, a verse that we always pray as we're Diving into your word, open my eyes that I would behold wonderful things from your law. When we talked this morning about how that is a prayer of dependence, we will not see what it is that we are meant to see unless you open our eyes. And so we, we pray what that next verse prays in verse 19. Don't hide yourself from me. Don't hide your commandments in your way from me. Don't hide yourself. We want to see you clearly. And you are here in these verses so clearly identified. So open our eyes to see exactly what we are meant to see. Holy Spirit, give us the gift of illumination this morning to know the love of Christ through these verses. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These verses, verses 1 through 8, we can really split up into three main sections, and there are three aspects of Boaz's costly committed love for Ruth. Number one, we're going to look at Boaz's love being committed to purity and integrity in verses 1 and 2. Number two, we're going to see that Boaz's love is committed to do what is right, even if it costs him, which is verses 3 and 4. And number three, we're going to see that Boaz's love is committed to pay whatever that cost might be, 
And that's verses five through eight. So let's start with number one. Verses one and two, Boaz's love is committed to purity and to integrity. We've already talked about this briefly in the last chapter with his character, but Boaz's love is committed to integrity and to purity. Verse one, Boaz goes up to the gate. This is the next day. Remember, uh, Boaz had told Ruth that he would figure out these things on the next day. This is the next day. Chapter four opens up with the next day. And he's at the gate, which the gate is the place of adjudication. This is the place where matters of law would be dealt with. This is the place where a a court was. The court was in session around the gate. I find that interesting that this is a matter of court because typically... We've all been there, right, where you go to the mailbox and you, you open it up and you pull out that envelope. And that envelope, you don't even have to open the envelope to know what it's asking of you. We've all been there where we see jury duty and we go, oh, no, right? We just, courtroom, the first thing that comes to our mind when we pull out the jury duty is not romance and redemption, right? Those aren't the two words that come to our mind. Two other words might come to our mind. Hopefully, they're not bad words. Hopefully, they're, thank you, Jesus, but th- this is... This is a a crazy place for romance and redemption to take place. But we're at a courtroom. We're in a courtroom scene. It's by the gate. And Boaz sits down. And behold. Behold is a very important Hebrew word. Look at this. It's, it's, It's trying to get our eyes focused on something amazing is happening. And the amazing thing is this close relative that Boaz had talked about in chapter three, three, there's another man that's closer uh, in relation to Elimelech than I am that can redeem the property and redeem Ruth and Naomi. This is that man. And behold, he just so happens to be walking by. Why is he walking by? There's no reason for him to be walking by. He must have some reason, but we don't know what it is. He's just walking by. It just so happens. The author of Ruth doesn't even need to use those words anymore. It just so happened. Because we already know it just so happens all the time in God's economy. And so he just says, behold, look, it's happening again. It just so happens that this close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, I think in his heart and his mind, wow, thanks, God. That's, that's lucky that this guy's just happening to walk by. But turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. Now, my Bible says friend. Turn aside friend. I don't know what your Bible says. Friend. There's a Hebrew word for a friend. This isn't that Hebrew word. If you want to say, this is my, Ben is my friend, you would not use this word. And in fact, you wonder at the use of this word. It's not like Boaz does not know this man's name. It's not like the author of this book doesn't know this man's name. But it's purposefully taken out, and just a word is put in there. Again, my Bible says friend, but that's not the best translation of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word, literally, it's two words, poloni almoni, which to me sounds like an Italian sandwich, but (laughs) poloni almoni. Turn aside, poloni almoni, turn aside, which even in the construction of those two words put together, you can kind of hear a sense of flippancy, right? Poloni almoni, I just... The best English translation of that word, polonial money, is Joe Schmo, Mr. So-and-so, you person. There's no name attached to this. It's just, hey, Mr. So-and-so. I remember growing up in, in my household, the way that we described this when we didn't quite remember the person's name was, who's it? I don't know why that became our thing, but hey, you know who's it? 
That's what this is. Hey, who's it? Hey, sit down. Hey, Joe Schmo. Hey, Mr. So-and-so. The same word is only used two other places in the Old Testament. This polonial money is only used two other places for a secret location that can't be revealed or uncertainty. First, Samuel chapter 21, verse 2, uh, it's translated in English, a certain place. So the, the location isn't named, it's just a certain place. And 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, my Bible says, such and such a place. That's a great translation, such and such a person. It's used to indicate uncertainty or specifically to avoid using the name. And that's what's happening here. It's not that Boaz doesn't remember, doesn't even know his own relative's name. No, he knows his name. So my question is, why is the name taken out? Why is the name taken out? When God does one thing, he's doing a billion things. But I think several reasons that we can look at. Why is the name taken out? Boaz's name is going to be remembered forever, right? Boaz's name is going to be remembered forever. And this man is going to say no to loving and redeeming at great cost to himself. He's going to say no to that. And it's as if God is saying to us through this book, he's not even worth being remembered. This man goes nameless. We will never know this guy's name. But Boaz, we will always have his name. In fact, the issue here at play is Boaz himself is willing to give up his name to carry on the name of Elimelech and his lineage. And the man, this Poloni Almoni, is not willing to give up his name. And who gets remembered? Poloni Almoni says, no, 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 I want to keep my name, my inheritance, my family line. I'm not giving that up. And we don't know his name. Boaz says, I am totally fine giving up my name. We'll talk more about this as we get to the sale of the property. I'm totally fine giving up my name, my inheritance, my family lineage. I'm fine doing that. And he's the one who gets remembered. It's amazing the way that the author, again, we've talked so much about the beauty of this book. It's amazing the way the author is walking us through each section. There's also, uh, if you remember when we were studying the book of Judges, uh, we never knew the, the Levite's name at the end of Judges. He was just called the Levite. We kind of got his name towards the very, very end, but he's just known as the Levite. And the reason why he's known that way is he's kind of typifying everybody. He is the typification of everybody in that time period. So this is another opportunity for the author to say, this guy doesn't even need a name because he's just like everybody else. We're in the period of the judges, right? Everybody's doing that which is right in their own eyes. It's just like everybody else. So in God's amazing sovereignty, Poloni Almoni shows up. And Boaz says, would you sit here? And he sits down. In verse 2, Boaz takes 10 men of the elders of the city and says, sit down. And they sit down. 10 is the number of people needed for a quorum, uh, for a public service, for the adjudication process to happen. So court is now in session. And I say all of this to say, Boaz wants to make sure every decision he's making is filled with purity and integrity. His love is committed to integrity. I want everything to be above board. I want everything to be seen, everything to be legal, everything to be right. While Boaz, at this point, desperately wants to marry Ruth, and while his heart is totally Ruth's at this point, there is something standing in the way between him and Ruth, and that is that his heart is the Lord's before his heart is Ruth's. And so he knows, I need to do what's right before God instead of just acting on my own impulses. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. But he's not going to do anything unless it conforms to God's law. And since there's a near, nearer relative than him, and we're going to talk a bit about this as we close the book, because it's amazing the way he wasn't obligated to do this. Boaz, we've talked about this before. He's not obligated. 
But he says, the heart of the command is still there. Though the letter of the law I'm not obligated to do, the spirit of the law says, take care of people who can't take care of themselves, and I'm going to do that. He knows the law. He has incredible integrity. I, if I were in his shoes, I know exactly what I would do, right? Just, you can do what you want and then ask for forgiveness later, right? Don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Boaz says, no, no, I'm going to ask for permission first. I'm going to make sure everything is filled with purity and integrity before God, before these 10 elders, before the whole city. He is the embodiment of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so that he says, my love is committed to purity and integrity. Number two, Boaz's love is committed to do what is right, even if it costs him. His love is committed to doing what is right, even if it costs him. So first, he's committed to purity and integrity. Secondly, he's committing to doing what is right, even if it costs him. This is verses three and four. Then he said, so we've got the elders, court is in session, Poloni Almoni's sitting there, and he says to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, this is new information to us. We have never seen thus far that she was selling this piece of land. So it's probably that she, knowing she wasn't going to be able to keep on existing the way that she was with Ruth, she had maybe talked with Boaz or maybe just in faith says, I'm going to put my property up for sale now so that somebody will redeem it. The reason why the redemption is happening, you could just write this down, Numbers chapter 27, verses 8 through 11. Numbers 27, verses 8 through 11. The way that land was transferred back then was incredibly specific. Right? Just You go back all the way to the principle of God's going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And he was going to tell you where the territories was, where, where, where all those territories are, and you stay in that territory, and once you get a portion of that land, that land is yours, and you keep on passing it on to your family. You don't just move those different aspects of land around. So Numbers chapter 27, verses 8 through 11, tells us that if the father died, it was supposed to be passed, the land was supposed to be passed to a son. If there's no sons, then it's passed to a daughter. If there's no children, it's passed to the brothers. If there's no children or brothers, it's passed to the paternal uncle, the father's brother. If it's none of those people, then the closest relative to that family gets it. You, you just can't let this, the land go. So this is new information. Naomi hadn't told us, and we hadn't been told by the author, that the land was for sale. This is new information. And off of this new information, Boaz says, she's selling, and we need to keep the land in our family. And since you're the closest, according to number 27, you get the first dibs to the land. That's what he's saying here. I want to inform you, our brother Elimelech, whether that's actual physical brother and Poloni Almoni and Boaz are brothers, or whether that's brother in the term of familiar, we're all in the family, we don't really know. But he said, I thought to inform you, verse 4, I wanted to say it before all those who are sitting here, again, above board, purity and integrity, and before the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, because there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And after that, we've got a problem. Because Elimelech's gone, Malon and Kilion are gone, so we got to take care of Naomi and Ruth. He's asking this man to buy the field and maybe along with it to take care of Ruth. He's giving him the option. You can take the woman that I love. Why? Because he loves even if it's at great cost to himself. He will do what is right because his love is committed to doing what is right even if it costs him. 
And at the end of chapter 4, I know that we've read this book. We read it once at the very beginning of our time together, and I know you've read it many times on your own, so you know how the story ends. But just try and put yourself at the end of verse 4, not knowing how the story ends. He says, are you going to redeem it? And Poloni Almoni says, yeah, I'll do it. What would Boaz have thought? Maybe God, I, I, I was doing the right thing, and you haven't blessed me. It's going to be taken away. God, I was doing it. There's another setback in this story because of his integrity. His obedience has provided another trial. It's a great principle that trials and setbacks in our life are not always due to our sin. His integrity produces another setback. But there is another setback. He says, I'll do it. Here's what Poloni Almoni is thinking, by the way. I just, we're going to have to do some technical things here. Poloni Almoni thinks, I will take Naomi's land, and he would have to fork over the cash for it. I'll pay for it. I'll redeem it and then give it back to Naomi. But once Naomi dies, I get that land. It becomes mine. And since Naomi seems to be decently old, he's thinking, I have my land for my family, and then Naomi has land, and if I just fork out the money for it now, I'm going to get all that money back because I'm going to get the land. I just have to sit around and wait till Naomi dies. I will provide for her by giving her the land, redeeming the property, but then I get my money back and I get more land. So in him, there's zero reason whatsoever, in his mind, there's zero reason whatsoever to not make this decision. I'm going I'm to gain land without really having to do anything. This is awesome. And I just have to wait around for Naomi to pass away, and, and I'll get land, double my land. There's another setback. He says, I'll do this. And again, we, we need to linger. It, it would be great. We're already moving at a slow pace through Ruth, so we're going to keep moving. But it would have been great to end the sermon there. I'll redeem it, another setback, let's wait to see what happens. When I tell my kids bedtime stories, and I'm exhausted at night, and this is usually the case, they say, tell us a story, and I'll say, okay, once upon a time, the end. All right, good night. My kids go, that's not a story, Dad. And I go, yes, once upon a time, the end, it's done. They say, no, Dad, there's no middle. Stories have to have a middle. This is the middle. Let's not skip over this. I think Christians tend to read stories because we know the whole point of the Bible and we know how it all ends. We tend to read stories without the middle. Esther becomes queen and saves her people. The end. Yeah, but what happened in the middle? What happened in the middle? Ten chapters, what happened in the middle? If you want to know what happened in the middle, we're going to be studying that together in our small groups this semester. What happened in the middle? Daniel goes to Babylon and becomes a hero of the faith. Yeah, but what happened in the middle? Ruth, she's a widow and then marries Boaz. Hooray. What happened in the middle? This is the middle. Even Jesus, he comes down to earth, he dies on a cross, he rises from the dead. But what happened in the middle? It's so important. So here we are, smack dab in the middle. Poloni Almoni says, I'll, I'll redeem it. So Boaz's love is committed to purity and integrity, number one. It's committed to do what is right, even if it costs him. Verses three and four. Even if he might lose something that he loves, even if doing the right thing makes him lose something that he loves. But that isn't the end of the story. 
Point number three, Boaz's love is committed to pay whatever the cost might be. His love is committed to pain, whatever the cost might be. This is in verses 5 through 8. And it's almost as if the writer knows we've had enough setbacks in this book. Like we have gone time after time of there's a barley harvest, oh, but it's going away. There's a redeemer, oh, but there's another guy. Just constantly over and over again. It's like the author knows we just got to get this matter over with and just give hope. And this this is going to be the rest of the book of Ruth. Just hope. Verse 5, Boaz said, Oh, I forgot to mention one thing. On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Boaz is so shrewd here. Um, It's like if, if you're in an interview for a job that you want more than anything in the world. But you don't want to like tip your hand for that. So they say, you got the job. When can you start? And you go, I don't know. Let me, let me check my calendar for a second. Um, next week? Yeah, okay. And you're like, yes. He's so shrewd. Hey, Polonial Money, I've, I've got this thing. Do you want to buy it? And he, he sees no reason not to buy it. And then Boaz says, not only wisely and shrewdly, but also with integrity. Before you make your decision, Polonial Money, I want you to know all the information. And he says, there's a woman. Now, there's a very interesting issue in the text here. The good news is, whatever way it works, uh, the ending is the same. And I want to walk through both of those. My Bible says, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must acquire... The oldest text that we have, and I believe the right text that we have, don't say you must, but I will. Now, you got changed to say you must because if you go all the way back to the beginning of our sermon series, we talked about this idea of lever at marriage, that if your brother died, um, if your brother died but was married, you as his brother were called to marry your Sister-in-law, you had to marry her to raise up children. You can go all the way back to Genesis to see leveret marriage played out. But this isn't leveret marriage. Um, Malon is not Boaz's brother. This isn't Ruth was married to Boaz's brother, and therefore when Boaz's brother died, uh, Boaz has to marry Ruth. There's no need, there's no obligation. We've talked about that several times. There's no obligation because of the law of lever of marriage, for him to be able to say, you must do this. Because people have a misunderstanding of lever of marriage, they put in, you must. But I believe it's I will. Now, the good news is, again, no matter what happens, it still presents a problem to Poloni Almoni. But here's what I believe is, is happening. Boaz says, on the day that you buy the field, just so you know, there's a woman... It's Naomi's daughter-in-law. I'm marrying her. I'm going to marry her no matter what happens. But I'm going to marry her, and listen to what happens. I'm going to marry Ruth the the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Who's the deceased here? Malon. Malon died. Malon is Elimelech's son. Malon and Ruth are married. Malon died. So here's what Boaz is saying. 
And this is why it works no matter what. I think there's a lot more romance and love in what he's saying, and I think it is the older textual issue here, so I believe it's right. But either way, what Boaz is saying is Ruth will be married, and when she has children, those children will inherit the land. So, Poloni Almoni, you can buy the land from Naomi, and when Naomi dies, if Ruth and I have children, I'm out of the picture, and my kids get the name of Malon, and they get the land. So bottom line, whatever you buy today, Polonial money, whatever you buy today, you're going to lose eventually. Now, if it's you must acquire, he's given the option, and he's saying, hey, there was good news and maybe bad news if you don't like this person, Ruth, and he's kind of setting it up with the Moabitess, this widow. But I think he's also giving him an option. Hey, I'm going to marry her unless you're wanting to step in and do this. But either way, you need to know, buddy, you will not keep the land. And Polonia Almoni knows that. That's why he says in verse 6, the closest relative said, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. I'm going to sell, I'm going to buy this piece of land with money and I thought I was going to get that money back because I was going to get the land, but now you're telling me I'm losing all of that money and the land? I don't have enough money to do that. I'm going to lose my inheritance to give to my own kids. I need to take care of my kids. I'm not going to take care of Naomi and raise up kids for Ruth and Naomi and then just hand everything over to them. I can't do that. It would jeopardize, literally in the Hebrew, it would ruin my own inheritance. I can't, I don't have money for that. So redeem it for yourself. You have the right of redemption. I'm not going to do it. Again, everything's so above board here, but you need to see the contrast between Polonia Almoni and Boaz. Polonia Almoni wants to make this decision because of greed, not because of love. Boaz wants to make this decision because of love. It'll take away from everything I already have, Boaz says. I'm going to pay for the land, and then when I die, my own children will not get the land. It's going to go back to her family lineage. I don't own, I don't gain that land. But that's exactly what redemption is, sacrificing greatly to benefit the one that you love. So, Polonia Almoni, because of greed, says, nope, can't do that. Can't do that. And who would? If the bottom line here is whatever you buy today, you're going to have to give away down the road, who would say yes to that? Only somebody who is in love with the woman and wants to take care of her mother-in-law. He, Boaz, is sacrificing his own identity, knowing full well that his son will not ultimately be his son. He's not going to have his last name. He's going to give it to somebody else. He's going to give the inheritance to somebody else. But what ends up happening is that, in the end, we never see Elimelech's name or Malon's name ever again. Boaz is fine giving up his own name, but his name is the one that continues on for all of eternity. Malon and Elimelech never show up again in this book. So, he says, you redeem it. I can't do that. I can't jeopardize my own, my own uh, inheritance. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land to confirm a matter. This is what would happen. If you were buying or selling property, a man would re remove his sandal, give it to another, and this was the manner to attest to what had just happened. Now, what is this sandal business? I have absolutely no idea. 
I don't know what it is. It's kind of like we talked about this on Wednesday night. How long was the period of mourning? I don't know. Commentators don't know. The only thing that we know is the period of mourning in the New Testament, period of once your spouse passed away, there was a seven-day-long period of weeping and wailing, and then you would bury the individual, and then you would um, go back into the cave and take out their uh, bones, put them into the ossuary a year later, and then it was over. So a year's worth of mourning. But we don't know if that was Old Testament. This is Old, Old Testament. Maybe it was three years, maybe five years, seven years. One commentator said ten. That seems very long in my mind to mourn the death of your spouse. So I would say a year. We don't know. Same thing here. I don't know. I can give some clues. Just write these down. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24. Deuteronomy 11, verse 24. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. So shoes and feet symbolize ownership and possession. So maybe there's an aspect of here, you can have my sandal because you can take the land. You would give the sandal to the person that was, sell- that was buying it. You have it. Uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Again, ownership or possession. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. You remember this passage where God says at the burning bush, don't come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet because the place that you're standing on, it's mine. I own it. It's holy. Psalm chapter 60, verse 8. Moab is my washbowl, says the Lord. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe. Again, ownership and possession. So I don't know exactly how this works, this sandal business. All I know is bring this back. This is the best way to buy a house. When we were buying our house, I thought I was signing my life away for hours and hours. We had a children on our lap. We were signing and signing here and signing here and signing here and signing. Just constantly, if If all we had to do was say, here, have a sandal. (laughs) Just have a sandal. I would love this. Just you see somebody walking around with a sandal in their hand, you say, hey, congrats on the new house. Like, (laughs) I would love this custom. Please bring this back. Whatever the custom is, and I love how this book was apparently written a little bit after the fact because the author has to tell us this isn't really happening anymore. So in the former times, this is the way that property was sold. But verse 8, the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he gives him his sandal. Verse 8 sums up the suffering of this book. Sometimes the people that God afflicts begin to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They begin to see. We had another setback, but it, it was resolved very quickly. And the text doesn't say it, but in my own sanctified imagination, as Ruth and Naomi are waiting in their home to find out what happens, I I see them just sitting there. Maybe they're praying. Maybe they're just talking because they know this is in God's hands. We can wait. And as they're sitting there, they hear a knock on the door, and they open it. And Boaz is standing there with his hands behind his back and he looks up and then he just holds up one sandal. And tears start streaming down Naomi's eyes, her face covered, weeping at the goodness of God. And he looks at Ruth and he says, it's finished. You're mine. This is the goodness of our God on display. What are we meant to see in these verses? 
We're, we can see God's sovereignty in Poloni Almoni just showing up. We can see Boaz's character. But more than all of that, if I could put it in one phrase, we are meant to see in these verses the costly commitment of God's Redeemer. The costly commitment of God's Redeemer. In this case, it's Boaz. And he has redeemed Naomi. And he has redeemed Ruth. And he has bought that land at great cost to himself. He's committed to purity, to integrity. He's committed to do what's right, even if it costs him. He's committed to pay whatever the cost might be. And he never gets the money back. It's fine. But there is another Redeemer who shows up. And we are meant to see the costly commitment of God's Redeemer, not just in Boaz, but in Jesus Christ. God's love for you and for me is committed to purity. This is why sin must be dealt with. A lot of people think, well, God can just turn a blind eye to sin. No, he's committed to integrity. He's a just judge. He can't just say, eh, I'll pardon everybody. Sin must be paid for. He must do what is right to fulfill all righteousness and make us right by him doing what's right. And he does this at great cost to himself. He sends Jesus Christ to live in our place, to be our kinsman redeemer, to be our close relative, so that he could live a perfect sinless life and then die on the cross, taking our penalty on the cross because we have not lived perfect sinless lives. Jesus loses his own life because of love. He is happy to do it because of the glory that God's going to get and because he wants to adopt you. He wants to marry you. There's costly commitment in the love of Boaz and there is even greater, more costly commitment in the love of our Redeemer. So I always say when we sing, why should I gain from his reward? He did all the work and I get all the benefits. That's what Ruth is going to say. I didn't do anything and I get everything. Boaz is fine with this incredibly losing proposition. I'll lose everything, even my own name, but that's okay because I love her. So that's why I asked at the beginning of the sermon, do you love that way? You will only love that way. Sacrificing, serving at great cost yourself, you will only love that way if you know the love that God has lavished upon you. And I want to end, just go to Deuteronomy chapter just reading a couple verses and then we'll sing just to confirm these truths to our hearts Deuteronomy, a lot of times people think the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament that's not real they're the same God and God is never changing and here as he's addressing Israel Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 32 indeed ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to, to go and to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God and there is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice. To discipline you and on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. He loved them. 
That's why he did everything that he did. Even the discipline that he brings, he does it because he loves them. And he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. Turn just a couple chapters over to chapter 7. Verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number. He set his love on you. He chose you, not because of anything we did. You're the fewest of people. This is Israel. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, he is faithful, and he keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love him and keep his commandments. If you go back up to verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord chose, has chosen you to be a people for his, my Bible says, own possession. That's literally his own treasure. Brothers and sisters, God treasures you. He loves you. He cherishes his relationship with you. And he's lavished love upon you. And if you were to flip into the New Testament, the greatest word that's most often used to describe us as believers is those who are, and in our translations, it's beloved it's just those who are loved by God, lavished with the love that God has given. Do you know that love today? If you don't know the love of Jesus Christ for you, don't, don't go to lunch. Lunch can wait. Eternity can't. If you don't know without a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, that you have been loved in this way, that you understand the gospel, just stay back. We'll set up the room and we'll just hang out. Just stay back. And don't leave until you know the love that God has for you. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the amazing grace that we see in the costly commitment of Boaz's love that shines us, spotlights us uh, forward to the gospel, the love that God has given to us. You've given us such amazing grace. And so, Father, I pray that as we confirm these truths to our hearts through song, I pray that you would work in us to know, to feel the love that you have given and lavished upon us.